we had a topic request as as the regular members here know we've got a sheet up there where if you got a question or thought about a, a sermon or, or topic idea uh, you can write it up there and we had one uh, pertaining to the Sabbath um, and I hope I didn't veer too far off of what the question was getting at uh, but I, I, it really I, I think was about are we supposed to uh, rest either on the Sabbath day or on Sunday I'm not sure uh, exactly which way the question was but hopefully we'll be able to talk through that and and look at uh, what we can see in the Bible about that today. I put it on the PowerPoint uh, because hit the play. There we go. There we go. Uh, Because there's a lot of scriptures that I had and I felt like I would be able to get through them quicker if I just put them on the PowerPoint. So uh, all the scriptures that I have will be uh, on the projector here. But the Sabbath for us today, I think we understand when we say Sabbath, uh, pretty much everybody's going to understand or think of the Sabbath day uh, and, and the seventh day, uh, which which we'll see uh, it was a day of rest. It was a day that God sanctified. In Genesis chapter 2 is the first time uh, we see this idea of a, a special day of the week set aside for a reason. Uh, when God finished creating the earth, uh, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, it said he blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all of his work which God created and made. And so this is the first mention where we have a, a, a day being sanctified or set apart or, or acknowledged as something uh, going on different on that day. Um, the next mention is you just go through the Bible, and that's what I'm going to try to do, just let's go through it and just look at each time it comes up. The next mention of this idea of resting on a day shows up in Exodus chapter 12. Um, and this isn't really the Sabbath like what we would think of in pertaining to the law of Moses, but let's, I wanted to just look at that because that's the next time we see this idea of resting on a day. This is uh, pertaining to the children of Israel as they're fixing to observe the first Passover and, and be led out of Egypt. In Exodus twelve sixteen, it says, In the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat. That only may be done for you. So again, we see them resting on these two days. Um, but not necessarily the Sabbath day like we would think of it pertaining to the old law, uh, but still we do see them resting. All right, then we get to uh, what we often think of as the Sabbath and and the rules around uh, observing the Sabbath day. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, this is where Moses is delivering the Ten Commandments from God. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, or actually God has given it to Moses, uh, verses 8 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is the, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt do, thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant or the maidservant nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay, and so here's the first time we see the Sabbath day um, really coming as a rule to God's people and some instructions for how to observe it. And it's mentioned again kind of in the same fashion in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 12 if you wanted to look at that. All right, and... So the next time after Exodus 23, 
is in Exodus 31, uh, starting in verse 12. And here we're going to run into uh, this idea of a perpetual covenant, which may be where some of the thought comes from of do we still need to observe the Sabbath today? Uh, do we still need to rest today on Saturday or on Sunday? Uh, this idea of a perpetual covenant, I could see, could cause people to think, hey, well, this may be something that, that it, we're supposed to do for all time. And so I wanted to just look at a lot of different passages that talk about a perpetual covenant, uh, not just pertaining to the Sabbath. but So we can see that this idea of a perpetual covenant uh, is something that shows up in a lot of different ways about a lot of different things. So in Exodus 31, starting in verse 12, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Every one that defileth it shall be put to death, for whoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh day, but the, in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever doeth any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communion with him upon Mount Sinai, two tablets of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. And so here again, a, another recounting of God giving Moses the Ten Commandments. And we see this commandment of observing the Sabbath day. We see the significance that it's a covenant between the children of Israel and God. Uh, and he describes it as a perpetual covenant and, and gives them some details about how to observe that. And so just keep... This idea of perpetual covenant and everlasting covenant, that's another uh, terminology we're going to see in some of these other passages. And notice as we go through these next few verses, these next few uh, passages, that it, this idea of a perpetual or everlasting covenant can show up in a lot of different ways about a lot of different things. <laughs> all right, so uh, Genesis chapter 9. We're all familiar with this. After the flood... Uh, it says, And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. And so here we see the everlasting covenant between God and all of his creation that he won't flood the earth again. And the rainbow as a reminder of that. In Genesis 17, uh, talking about uh, Abraham and the promises made to him, let's look at what God says uh, about those promises to Abraham. It says, When Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, 
and thou shalt be a father to many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations I have made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee and their generation. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations, that he is born, he that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. And so here in these promises made to Abraham, we see the promises of, of um, the family, the land, uh, and this covenant being described as an everlasting covenant that God is making between himself and Abraham. Uh, and we also see in the last part there uh, this idea of circumcision uh, and that, that that's part of this everlasting covenant. Uh, and so, again, just keep in mind, I'm just trying to show you that this idea of a perpetual or everlasting uh, concept applies to a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. All right, Leviticus 24 says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto, the, unto thee pure olive oil beaten for the light to cause the lamps to burn continually without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron order it from the evening, and Aaron shall order it from the evening until the morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually, and thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof, and two tenth deals shall be in one cake. And thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And when thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it shall be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy to them, of the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. And so here this is just some, some directions for the Levitical priests uh, and some things that they're supposed to be doing as part of the old law. And, and I just want to see the relationship that or the verbiage here that is used to describe that covenant of the old law as everlasting. And we're going to look at later on, you know, uh, kind of develop the thought uh, that the old law wasn't really everlasting. It, it was uh, taken over or replaced by the new law. So 
Uh, again, just to show that that, that wording can, can kind of have some different meanings or thoughts behind it. Numbers 18 and 8. And the Lord spake unto Aaron, Behold, I have also given thee a charge of mine, heave offerings of all the hallowed things of the children of Israel. Unto thee have I given them by the reason of anointing, and to thy sons by an ordinance forever. All right, so here, again, some more instructions to the Levitical priesthood, uh, saying that the things he's put in place for them are an ordinance forever. Okay, 2 Samuel 23 and 5. This is uh, David, uh, some things that Dave, King David says. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to pro for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. And this is David referring to a covenant that God has made with him as an everlasting covenant. Same thing uh, in 1 Chronicles 16. It says, Remember, this is David again, Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Okay, so here part of this everlasting covenant goes back to those promises uh, that were made to Abraham about the land of Canaan. When you get into the prophets, you see them talking about the, the same everlasting covenant that that was described to uh, Abraham uh, and then you also see them prophesying about a new covenant that's also described as an everlasting covenant uh, and so you've got two covenants described in that way Isaiah 24 5 it says the earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws and changed the ordinance and broken the everlasting covenant so here Isaiah is saying that that covenant was broken. One party broke that covenant. In Isaiah 54.10, The mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord uh, that have mercy on thee. Okay, so here Isaiah is talking about a covenant of peace that will not be removed. And I, I think that's going to be an allusion or a, a reference to um, this peace that's going to come through salvation in Jesus ultimately. Isaiah 55 says, "Incline your ear and come to me, hear that and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast sure love for David." Again in Jeremiah 32, "Now therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword and by famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell safely. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. 
So this is Jeremiah prophesying about the remnant uh, and bringing them back from, uh, from everywhere he had driven them out into captivity, bringing them back, back and making with them an everlasting covenant that he would not turn away from doing them good. And uh, I think we can, you know, we see that play out. We've talked about that remnant coming back. We've talked about um, this... Uh, doing good to them always we bring that up often that 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 even that that idea translate all all the way into us today into the new testament all right ezekiel 16 uh, 59 starting in verse 59 ezekiel says for thus says the lord god i will deal with you as you have done you have despised the oath and breaking the covenant Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame." When I atone for you and for all that you have done, declares the Lord. And so that same wording there about an everlasting covenant. All right, again in Ezekiel. I will make them one nation in the land and on the mount, on the mountain of Israel, and one king shall be over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes and they shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. And they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And so this is uh, uh, Ezekiel prophesying about things that God's going to do for Israel. Uh, and, and, and this idea of their, his servant David being their king, you know, this is after the time of King David. You know, this is, this is a prophecy talking about, uh, I believe, talking about Jesus and and really it gets into thinking about spiritual Israel here and this idea of a covenant of peace and an everlasting covenant again we see that wording uh, and can can realize that all that's got to be sorted out all right so we've got various covenants talked about in everlasting terms uh, from the rainbow covenant uh, to the promises and covenant God made with Abraham uh, to the Ten Commandments, uh, circumcision, the Sabbath, the priesthood uh, things, talk about perpetual statutes, uh, the prophecies we've been looking at about the remnant and the covenant God was going to make with the remnant that came back out of captivity, uh, and these prophecies about uh, an everlasting covenant that's looking forward to the new covenant, uh, the, the covenant that we have through Jesus and through His blood. And so... 
all of this just to show that you know the the verbiage in there about the sabbath being this perpetual covenant uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that is something god is expecting his people to observe uh for all time so what about us today in the new testament what do we see christians doing in regard to the sabbath uh you know if you start with jesus what was he doing uh, you've, you've got to realize what law he was under. He was still under the old law. He kept the Sabbath correctly. Uh, he taught and he healed on the Sabbath. We see him doing a lot of things on the Sabbath. Uh, and in Mark chapter 2, in an in a exchange that he has there, uh, he says to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. He calls himself Lord of the Sabbath there. And so... Uh, again, under the New Testament, you got to think about what law was Jesus under. He hadn't died yet. This old covenant, uh, the law of Moses, was still in effect. Uh, and so he would have been observing uh, those things that way that God had intended. All right. I guess this all begs the question, and I might should have put this slide at the very beginning. But you know, when you really think about what is a Sabbath... It can be a couple different things. If you look up vines, uh, just the basic definition, a Sabbath or Sabbath means to decease, I mean to cease and desist. Uh, so basically to stop doing something is what the general definition of a Sabbath uh, means. Uh, it, it's this idea of complete cessation or making to cease. So you stop doing something. Uh, it's not necessarily the idea of relaxing or refreshment, although we do see that concept uh, kind of built into the way God describes it under the old covenant and under what he did after creation. Um, the Sabbath is also what we think of oftentimes as the observance, observance of the seventh day of the week as part of the covenant of the old law with Israel uh, and the, the instructions that God had given them pertaining to that. And this was a, a interesting, I guess, fact that Bynes had in his, in his uh, definitions or thoughts under Sabbath. Uh, you take it for what it's worth, but kind of a historical fact. Bynes says that for the first three centuries of the Christian era, the first day of the week was never confounded with the Sabbath. Uh, the confusion of the Jewish and Christian institutions uh, that happened after the third century was due to basically getting further away from the time of the apostles and, and I guess kind of a departure from the apostolic teaching there. And so for the first 300 years you know, of history, it doesn't seem like there was a lot of confusion uh, surrounding what Christians were supposed to be doing in regards to the Sabbath. It wasn't confused with the Jewish uh, laws. All right, let's look at what Christians were doing based on what we can see in the Bible. Um, there's several different examples of Christians doing things on the Sabbath day. In Acts chapter 13, just about all of them are in Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 13 and verse 14 says, and this is Paul and his companions uh, on one of his journeys. It says, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. All right. Uh, so... That's Christians going into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sitting down. Uh, on the, in Acts chapter 16 and verse 13, On the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and we spoke unto the women which resorted thither. 
Um, again, this is Paul and his companions on one of their journeys. Uh, this is their encounter with Lydia. On the Sabbath day, they went out to where they knew people went out to pray. Uh, and so Paul and his companions went there. Acts chapter 17, again with Paul uh, in verse 2, it says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Okay, so here we've got Paul, and it, and it says this was his manner, and other versions render this as his custom was. Uh, so this is what Paul often did on the Sabbath day. He went to the synagogue to reason with them uh, out of the Scriptures. Again, in verse 18 and 4, it says, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, this is Paul again, and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Okay, so all four of these have got Christians on the Sabbath day. Uh, it's pretty much Paul every time, and it seems that when you put all this together, you see that this was what he primarily did on the Sabbath, was went to the synagogue or went to where people were gathered for religious regions to reason from the scriptures and to teach and convince him you know i think we can understand the message that he was teaching was about jesus none of these seem to be them observing the sabbath uh like under the old law uh it just seems to me that they were going there because that was an opportunity for them to teach and reason uh from the scriptures and you got to put a lot of other pieces together to kind of understand that but you know just at face value it doesn't seem like these were things, Paul wasn't going to uh, the synagogue on the Sabbath as observing the Sabbath day as a Jew. It seems like he was going there as an opportunity to teach. If, and uh, it seems to confirm this in <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2 and what Paul wrote. Uh, look at what he says. He says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So we're picking up in the middle of a thought, but he's talking about how Jesus did away with the old law uh, through his sacrifice. Verse 15, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And so he's saying don't let anybody judge you in regards to if you're keeping the Sabbath day or not. He's saying that was put to death. This idea of observing the Sabbath day was, was done away with uh, with the cross. It was nailed to the cross. Galatians chapter 3. Again, this is Paul. Uh, and he's referring back to this covenant that was made with Abraham. And it was interesting to me, you know, this, this everlasting covenant we read about with Abraham, uh, you know, really does go all the way through to the new uh, covenant that we're under. That was the promise that was made to Abraham, that all nations would be blessed through his seed, uh, which was Jesus. And that's the point that Paul's making here, that that promise that was made to Abraham was in regards to Jesus. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise." Okay, so Paul's making the argument here to the Galatians, you know, that the 
the old law didn't annul the promise that was made to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through his seed. And and basically his point that he's saying is, you know, the old law was kind of in between that promise made to Abraham and Christ, uh, but that now because of Christ and what he did, that's the covenant we're under. And when you think about it, you know, there's tons of stuff throughout uh, the writings from the apostles in the New Testament about the old law dying out, uh, as well as a constant effort from the apostles to do what? To, to fight off Judaism and, and fight off Christians wanting to go back to Judaism and, and, and battling against that, you know, telling them you're no longer under those laws. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 uh, is one of the places where we see what Christians were doing uh, it seems that they were gathering on the first day of the week. It says, Upon the first day of the week, when disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to part on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And so there we've got New Testament Christians uh, coming together on the first day of the week. Same thing in verse uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Uh, Paul saying, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by in him and store as God has prospered, that there be no gatherings when I come. So again, Paul's assumption there uh, seems to be that they were would be together on the first day of the week. Besides that, there's no other mention or command or example or implication uh, that Christians were keeping the rules of the Sabbath as part of the new covenant that we're under today. Uh, you just you don't see Christians observing uh, the Sabbath day like they were under the old law as part of the new law. Uh, and so this, this idea of, of resting on the Sabbath wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be carried over into the new law, it doesn't seem like. Uh, all right, so if you summarized all of this up, you've got the Sabbath mentioned at creation when God rested. Uh, you've got specific rules and regulations that seem to have come with the old law pertaining to the Sabbath, and that's the only place you get these rules about what to do around the Sabbath are, are under the old law. Uh, those are where the rules came from under that old covenant. Uh, the, the idea or the thought of this being a perpetual covenant, uh, we looked at lots of ways that that language appears in lots of different contexts. You know that that have to be sorted out and and kind of look at the big picture to see uh, that uh, just because it says a perpetual covenant doesn't always mean that that is a law for all time. Uh, prophets speak of a different everlasting covenant, which would be referring to the new covenant. Paul's custom of going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day to teach uh, doesn't show us that he was observing that as a Jew under the old law. Uh, and again, we don't have any mention of Christians observing the Sabbath because of it being required of them or, or expected of them from God. We, we really kind of see this idea of, of, you know, we're not under the old law anymore. Don't go back to those things. Uh, and that's what there's lots of arguments about in the New Testament uh, and warnings against going back to those things. All right, so all that to say, you know, I don't believe that observing the Sabbath day on the first, the Sabbath day or the first day of the week as a day of rest is something that we see God's Word telling us is required for us as Christians today. Um, you know, there's uh, probably 
some arguments that could be made that it's good to have a day of rest, uh, that uh, having a day focused on spiritual things would be a good thing. All of that, you know, I, I would say and believe is, is fine, but I don't see any way that you could uh, go to the Scriptures and prove to someone that we are supposed to rest on Saturday or Sunday uh, because that, that is a, a commandment that God has given us today. You know, I've heard all kind of different discussions about this. It it seems like maybe in years past it was a much more common thing for people to not work on Sunday and not, you know, do whatever on Sunday uh, because of a day of rest. And, that you know, all that argument, I guess, is uh, fine from a personal standpoint, in my opinion. I mean, if someone doesn't feel that they should work on Sunday, that's fine. Uh, you know, I don't see that, that they could require that of anyone else based on the scriptures but uh, again if they want to not work on Sunday I think that's perfectly fine in their decision um, you know I've, uh, I remember David McGee did a really good class on this one time at East Columbus where he went through that and he had some beliefs about that and you know kind of stuck to that but said you know I'm not going to make you stick to that because I can't uh, you know I decided just my personal thoughts uh when we changed uh, to having all three hours in a row on Sundays instead of an evening service, I kind of examined myself and thought about my tendencies, and I thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to make up my mind because I know myself, if I plan to do something fun after church on Sunday, like hunting or fishing, that's going to be all I can think about because I know myself. And I know that's going to be a distraction to me. So I personally made up my mind I'm not going to do hunting or fishing on Sundays after church. I'm going to, to try to hang around closer to the house. And that's my, you know, that's my decision. That's what, you know, y'all can do what you want to do after church. Uh, I'm not going to say anything to you about it. But, again, that's my personal decision, and I think that's where this idea of, of resting uh, on the Sabbath day or on Sunday would fall. Uh, so I hope that was helpful. I hope that addressed uh, maybe the the topic as, as it was wanted to be addressed. If not, I'll be glad to talk with anybody else about any of it. Um, you know, we've talked about resting, uh, and God has promised us eternal rest under some certain conditions. He's made uh, great promises. Uh, he's gone to great lengths for us to have salvation by sending his son uh, because he loved us and we talked about this morning the gratitude that we should feel and have and show towards him for what has been done for us and and all that begins with a decision to become one of his children and we can see if you look in the new testament at what were people doing to become saved what were they doing to become one of god's children as described in the new testament we see that they were believing in Jesus, believing in that sacrifice, understanding that they had sinned against God and that the only way to get forgiveness for that sin was through contact with his blood, being buried with him in baptism is what we see people doing to become God's children. And so we offer that invitation whenever we get together for anyone who has not done that uh, to take advantage of that. If you understand and see that that's what people were doing to become saved and to be God's children, then, uh, you know, we invite you to come and let that be known that you want to do that. You want to be buried with him in baptism, raised 
a new person cleansed of your sins, uh, devoted to being a servant of his uh, throughout your life. Now, many of us here have already done that uh, and have been Christians for a long time, some of us for a short time. Uh, but the scriptures also tell us and describe to us that even once you've done that, once you've become a Christian and, and are a child of God, you're going to still sin. Uh, there's going to be times when you fail God, and he's thankfully made us a way to get forgiveness of that by repenting of that sin, confessing it, uh, asking for forgiveness through prayers, and we certainly encourage uh, one another to do that if that's the case uh, in our lives uh, so that we have a right standing in, of God. And if, if there's a need for any of, of those, we ask that you would let that be known as we stand and sing. <laughs>